You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. This is a regular kid. (laughs) And his best friend in the whole wide world. They do everything together. They explore, they eat together, they relax together. And this kid, he makes things. And this companion unmakes things. <laughs> so one day, this kid, he had an idea. He had a vision. He is going to make the most magnificent thing. He knows how it will look. He knows how it will work. All he has to do is make it. And he makes things all the time. So easy peasy. So first, this kid, he hires an assistant. And next, they gather up their supplies. And they set up out of the way, and they get to work. The kid tinkers, the kid hammers, the kid measures, all while his assistant growls and chews. And when this kid is finished, he stands up, steps back, and admires his work. He walks around one side, his assistant walks around the other side, and Um, it doesn't look right. He shakes it, and you know what? It does not feel right. They are shocked to discover that this thing is not magnificent or even good. It is not even sort of okay. It is all wrong. Ugh, the kid... The kid gives it another go. He smooths, he wrenches, he fiddles. His assistant circles around and tugs and wags. (laughs) And when he's finished, he takes a long look at it. His assistant nudges it. It's still wrong. He decides to give it another try, and he saws. He saws. He also glues. (laughs) He adjusts. He tweaks. He fastens. He twists. He tries all different ways to make it 
better. And it is not magnificent. His hard work, in fact, it attracts a few admirers. But they just don't really understand. They cannot see the magnificent thing that the kid has in mind. And the kid gets mad. And the angrier he gets, the faster he works. He smashes pieces into shape. And he jams the parts together. He pummels. If only the thing would just work. Crunch. Oh. The pain starts in his finger. And then it goes to his brain. And he explodes. It is not his finest moment. <laughs> I'm no good at this. I quit, he says. And his assistant suggests a walk. <laughs> and it is not much help at first, this walking around. But before long, he starts to feel a bit different. Bit by bit, the mad gets pushed out of his head. And as they stroll along, he comes across the first wrong thing he made. And the bad feelings are about to start all over again, but there are some parts of the wrong thing that are actually really quite right. The bolts on this one, the design of the other, there are all sorts of different parts that he likes. And by the time he reaches the end of the trail, he finally knows how to make this magnificent thing work. He works carefully and slowly, hammering and gluing and twisting. The afternoon fades into evening, and finally he finishes and he alerts his assistant. The pair take a long, good look, and it's a little wobbly and a bit heavier than he expected, but it's just what he wanted! And his assistant climbs on. It's just what the assistant wanted, too. It really is the most magnificent thing. Say in the flattest part of North Dakota, on a starless, moonless night, no breath of wind, a man could, hold a, could light a candle and then walk away. Every now and then, he could turn and see the candle burning. 17 miles later, Provided conditions remained ideal, he could still see the flame. But somewhere between the 17th and 18th mile, he would lose the light. If he were walking backwards, he would know the exact 
moment when he lost the flame. He could step forward and find it again, back and forth, dark to light, light to dark. What's the place where the light disappears? Where the light reappears? Don't tell me about photons and eyeballs, reflection and refraction. Don't tell me about 186,000 miles per second and the theory of relativity. All I know is that place where the light appears and disappears. That's the place where we live. So this morning's sermon was written by the Reverend Jen Crow, one of our senior co-ministers, who unfortunately is homesick right now. These are Jen's stories. This is Jen's wisdom. And this sermon is something that Jen wrote and wanted to share with you. And it's my honor to deliver the sermon this morning. It's written in the first person. When I started seminary almost 20 years ago, I had a particular idea of how things would go. I was 26 years old and newly married to my college sweetheart. I'd worked for a few years in a job that I loved, grateful for each management course, each professional development opportunity I was offered there, and ready to to leave that stability behind and move across the country with my wife. Starting over in the big city of Chicago in a tiny apartment, 475 square feet in total for me and her and our three cats. It would be a time of sacrifice, sure, but it would be worth it. I was a good student. I had succeeded at just about everything I tried. Thanks probably in equal parts to desperation, hard work, the color of my skin, and the generosity of strangers and friends. Why would this be any different? Three years later, I started my ministerial internship at Unity Church Unitarian across the river in St. Paul, with Rob and Jan Eller Isaacs as my mentors in ministry. This was a choice internship, and one more sign that things were really going my way. I dove in and I learned a ton. With these connections and all of my hard work, I was assured that I would head right into senior ministry at a large church after graduation, the first woman and the first lesbian to break the gender and sexual orientation barriers that had been so long present in our ministry. I like this plan a lot. When I returned to Chicago after my internship for my final year of seminary, though, things were not the same. The marriage I'd been so sure of didn't feel so sure anymore. 
The two of us had been growing, but we'd clearly been growing in different directions. And the more we talked, the clearer it became that if we were going to continue growing into the people we believed we were each meant to be, we would need to do that apart. A few weeks later, I found myself in front of our apartment building with friends packing and loading boxes into a rented truck as I stood there clutching a plastic spatula in the driveway, crying. A friend offered me a room in her apartment. Another friend helped me carry in the mattress we found on the curb and claim the $1 chair from the thrift store. Nothing made sense anymore. It was August, and in just a few months, I'd need to start applying for jobs in the ministry. And that's when another surprise came. This plan my mentors and I had charted out for my career wasn't so much taking shape. It turned out that lots of large congregations were interested in looking at me when I applied for positions with them. But when it came down to the decision-making time, I was not their choice. I had put all of my eggs in one particular kind of basket, and as graduation approached, I was looking into a future that included no sure employment, massive student loan debt, and ownership of a new identity I never wanted, divorced. Needless to say, when I stepped back into the pulpit of Unity Church Unitarian that spring, nearly a year after I'd finished my internship, and with graduation from seminary just a few weeks away, I was a little surprised at the direction my life had taken. This was not where I thought I'd be in my career trajectory when I accepted the invitation to preach. I was sure when I'd agreed to this preaching date that my sermon would be all about gratitude and new beginnings. It would be wonderful to have an opportunity to thank the folks who taught me so much as I launched out on that bright and shining path they had helped create for me. Instead, I took a deep breath and headed up into the pulpit and preached a very different sermon. This one titled, Nothing is Going as Planned. <laughs> I'm guessing that you have probably had these kinds of experiences in your life, too. Those times when you thought things were going to go one way, and suddenly there was a sharp turn or a crack in the ground that opened up and swallowed your expectations and your plans whole. Maybe the child you have is not the child you expected, or the child you longed for never arrived. Maybe the relationship you thought would last forever dissolved. Maybe the community you put your faith in betrayed you. Maybe you thought the founding principles of our country applied to you, and then they didn't. Maybe your understanding of how things work in our world keeps shifting as you open yourself to the life experiences and the truths of those who are different from you. 
Maybe love arrived when you thought you'd stay single forever. My wife is a medical social worker. Her job is to be with people and their families as they receive new and never wanted diagnoses. And she tells me that her most frequent conversation as she helps people to adjust goes like this. There's the way you thought things were going to go, and then there's the way things are, isn't there? The recovery community teaches that expectations are resentments waiting to happen. And I know this, and I still haven't managed to shake them entirely. I keep finding that wanting to make plans and count on their outcome is a very human thing. Perhaps that's why the tradition of Buddhism teaches us that suffering comes from our expectations and our attachments. That life is uncertain. And our clinging to the illusion of certainty is what harms us. So what do we hold on to? when the ground beneath us shifts, when the light of the candle goes out somewhere between mile 17 and mile 18, there out on the plains, what does our faith have to tell us when our once clear sense of who we were and what we are comes apart at the edges or right down the middle? Well, I can tell you what not to do. One of my biggest learnings in ministry came during my required hospital chaplaincy, sandwiched neatly between year one and year two of seminary. And I was making the rounds on neurology one morning when the nurses asked me to stop in and see a patient who had just received a new diagnosis of MS, multiple sclerosis. She was despondent, they said. Maybe I could help. So I sat down alongside this woman who at the time was 40 years my senior, and she was indeed despondent. In between sobs and gasps, she told me about her life. She and her husband had been working hard, saving for years, planning to retire and set out to see the country in their RV, traveling state to state, and park to park. And when this diagnosis occurred, she sobbed. All of this was lost. All of those years of hard work were for nothing. They wouldn't be able to travel, she said, because they'd need to be close by to her medical team. Her physical abilities would diminish, making enjoying all those parks they dreamed about impossible. And she would need to rely on her husband's care, something she had expected to offer to him. This woman who appeared to be able-bodied described the humiliation she anticipated of needing her husband's help going to the bathroom. And she wondered out loud why God was punishing her like this. And my young chaplain heart and mouth jumped in. I couldn't bear to listen to so much pain, and I looked to deflect it. 
Surely you can still travel, I said. There are accommodations you can look into. There are doctors all around the country, and I'm sure your husband won't mind helping you to the bathroom. It doesn't have to be so bad. She kicked me out of her room. <laughs> Luckily for me, after several days of reflection and a sincere apology, she invited me back in. You have to listen first, she taught me. Those feelings have to have a space and a place to come out. Disappointment, sadness, anger, confusion, self-doubt, grief. They all have to be allowed to flow freely before any pivot can be made. Any real acceptance can be had of a radically new reality. Only then, when the feelings are allowed to come and go like the waves they are, can you find assurance again in the few solid things that hold true no matter what. And these solid things, they're different for each of us. Pat answers won't hack it. Each of us has to do the work ourselves of refinding the center again and again, holding on to what matters most in this wild roller coaster of life. I keep learning the importance of being able to stay with the feelings, of encouraging myself and others to stay in the mess, to explore the complex and complicated truths and the reality of our lives as we keep moving forward in our racial justice work together, for example. If we move too quickly to action, we may not take in the fullness of our own or another person's experience, pushing aside each other's pain. I have to keep learning to stay with the discomfort when that is what needs to happen. And when my world came apart instead of together, as I expected it to when seminary ended, I found a few sure things I could hold on to. I learned that it was my friends and my teachers who would hold me up and make sure I always had a place to lay my head when things got hard. I held tight to the truth that my ministry and my calling always found a way to come out no matter what shape it took. And when I listened to a dear friend who advised me to be intentional about how I treated my wife as we divorced, I listened selfishly at first because I certainly did not want to have to go back later and apologize, but even more because I knew that all I would have in the end of all of these changes was myself and my actions. And I would have to live with who I was and what I'd said and done long before she was gone. So I practiced, imperfectly, treating my soon-to-be ex-wife and my own shattered self with compassion. And a dozen years later, in August of 2016, my family's house burned down in the middle of the night, and quite suddenly, 
nothing was going as planned again. I found myself falling back on the three things that had got me through before. Trust in my friends, trust in my calling, and practicing imperfectly compassion for myself and others. Hard-earned, trusted facts about what matters most at the center of my life, along with a whole lot of crying and list-making and chocolate chip cookies and care from you and so many others, it was enough. So I wonder, when things change or fall apart for you, where do you put your trust? What do you know to be true? And what do you need or who do you need to practice compassion with? What candle flickers are always there clear as day in moments visible and invisible to you and others that you can trust. I'm gonna ask you to trust me for a few moments here because I am about to make a big pivot to talking about the future of our church and some big choices that we have in front of us in these next few months. And I promise you, it is all connected to the experiences of change we've been talking about this morning. So please hang in there with me. This is actually really exciting stuff. Because no matter what choices this congregation makes as we move forward together, we will be making history together. So these past years, as we have been dreaming together about what this church is, what we are about. Part of what we've been exploring is the role our building can play in that becoming. As one of our largest financial resources, it is important that this physical structure reflect our values and our commitment. And to that end, as you know, we launched uh, and many of you, including me and my family, we're still making our gifts to a capital campaign. We launched a capital campaign, it is in process, called Not For Ourselves Alone, Building an Inclusive Future. And at the center of that campaign was a vision. We wanted to make our building into a more effective tool for our mission. We wanted it to be more welcoming, more accessible, more useful to our community, more financially and environmentally sound. We wanted our building to reflect the commitments to racial and environmental justice, and we wanted to put our largest resource to the best possible use, not just for ourselves, but for our community. And since that campaign began, a lot has changed. When we began, we imagined, for example, a new welcome and drop-off center toward the rear parking lot. And then an architectural review and more thought led us to imagine a more prominent, accessible, and welcoming DuPont Avenue entrance. And almost magically, long look for documentation, 
showed that we could build up on the foundation of this religious education wing, and we imagined a new third floor full of classrooms and meeting spaces. And then cost came in for a reality check, and we realized that a third floor was likely not within our reach, and its exit took with it the sense of possibility, the sense of openness. And around that time, conversations with Shir Tikva, a nearby reformed Jewish congregation, had continued all along in the background. Isn't that interesting? And as the synergies and shared commitments of our two congregations came to light, commitments to racial justice, commitments to ending white supremacy culture, commitments to environmental stewardship and creating spaces that reflected our values and our dedication to the community were shared. And this dreaming began, this time in the shape of co-location. And our two congregations decided to spend from September 2018 through June 2019, basically this church year, in a time of discernment asking and answering hard questions about finance, structure, and learning each other's culture and commitments. And now there are these new ideas of what shared space could look like here in this building, and new ideas of what shared commitments could mean, even as we live into our own distinct identities and missions as unique congregations. And at the center of all these changes has been our vision that the building serves the mission. A building that is welcoming, accessible, useful to our community, financially and environmentally sound and progressive. And while the shape of our practice may shift and change, our vision from the beginning and still is to create a space that is not for ourselves alone. And I think I've mentioned this before, but the learning for me, it bears repeating. Many months ago, I sat down with someone who led communities like ours through large building projects, like we're undertaking. She does this as her profession, it's her career. And I was feeling worried and frustrated about how long it was taking to bring our ideas of what we wanted to do with our building into fruition. And she listened and shared her decades of experience, and she showed me this model. It was a circle with arrows flowing around it, each arrow pointing to the next arrow. And at the top of the circle were the original ideas. So for us, for example, the idea of the drop-off welcome center over here at the back of the building and then there's an arrow pointing to the next spot on the circle labeled new information. And then we'd find the advice from our architects and the research about the feasibility of the third floor addition. And as we made our way around the circle some more, we might find the difficult news we received about the cost of all of our dreams and the reality of how much money we have to spend. And this stop might be labeled constraints. The new information and the constraints, so new information over here, constraints over here, leads back to the top of the circle where new dreams take shape. 
And then they begin the cycle again, taking in new information and new constraints as they arise. And the reality is that we were going to make our way around this circle many, many times together. And she assured me that eventually the project and the building, they really would be complete. The critical thing was to keep the vision, the primary commitments at the center of the circle, not letting the constraints or the new information knock what we know to be true about what is most important to us out of the conversation. So this is the circle we're in. We are gathering new information, we are considering the real life constraints, and we are holding the vision steady at the center of all we do. Doing our best to keep our eye on that candle out on the plains, paying close attention to when the light goes out and when it returns. And as we wait, we're taking on a few projects that we know without a doubt align with the vision. We've retired the mortgage, hooray. We have sealed the envelope on our sanctuary building, preventing water and wind from coming in through what used to be the many, many gaps in the bricks in our 92-year-old building. We've secured handicapped parking to the north side of our building by 34th Street. And soon, that entrance will have a door opener installed as well. And we are holding close to the vision at the center of who we are and who we long to be as a people. Inclusive, welcoming, accessible, a resource not just for ourselves alone, but for the larger community. We are a people who trust in the truth as we know it, that all are whole and holy and worthy, that we all are welcome here and everywhere, that our strength lies in our collective power, not in our individual strengths. We know that as we listen and learn from others, and as we share our own life experiences from the various complex and complicated contexts that created us, we will grow in strength, in power, and in love. We share a vision of love and justice here at First Universalist, and there are many things we can trust, not the least of which are those three things I learned during my own times of great change. We can trust that our friends will catch us, we can trust our community has a purpose in the world, and we can trust that compassion for ourselves and for each other will always be essential. So as we move through these conversations and whatever takes shape as the future changes, let us lean on to the things that we know to be true. May this be our work both here in our shared community and within the circles of our own lives, practicing compassion, trusting in our purpose, leaning on each other and lifting each other up as we look out onto the plains and catch and lose and catch the light again. May it be so, and amen. And thank you, Jen Crow.
thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.